Um, open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. If you've got a Bible or a device, um, we're going to hit the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Um, to set the context a little bit, one of the most well-known and popular stories that Jesus ever shares in the Gospels is found in Luke 15, and you might know it as the story of the prodigal son. And it's this beautiful story uh, where there's a father and he's got two sons. He's got a younger and an older the younger goes to the father and says, dad, give me my share of the inheritance right now. I want it now before you die. And so sadly, the father gives him his, his share of the inheritance. And this younger brother, this younger son, runs off and takes his inheritance and squanders it and spends it on all kinds of um, just self-destructive things and partying and revelry and prostitutes and all these things. And where that leads him is ultimately uh, to the lowest point of the low. He finds himself in a pigsty um, trying to eat what the pigs are eating because he has absolutely nothing. He's just shipwrecked his life. And it's this beautiful moment of clarity and of humility where the younger brother um, comes to his senses and goes, man, even the slaves in my father's house have something to eat. They have enough. And so he goes, well, maybe I can go back to my father's house and just be a slave in his household and maybe he'll take me back. He expects the father to reprimand him and scold him and punish him. He's not sure if he's going to be welcomed back. And he, he goes back and there's this beautiful scene, uh, this beautiful picture where the father sees the son still far off in the distance turning toward him and the father runs toward him and wraps his arms around and puts his robe on the younger son, puts his sandals on his feet, puts his ring on his finger, kills the fattened calf, which is the most valuable thing that they had, and throws a party for him. Instead of reprimanding, it's celebration that this son, who, as the father says, was lost, and now he's found, was dead, and now he's alive, and they celebrate that. And it's this amazing, beautiful picture of the gospel, the grace of God, that nobody is too far off, nobody is too far gone, that if we turn back to God at any point, he is welcoming us home. He wants to bring us home. He wants to wrap his arms around us and love us and show us grace, not because of anything we've done, not because of us, but in spite of us, because he's that loving, he's that gracious. And so there's that beautiful picture of the gospel. But then there's another son. There's the older son who we sometimes just kind of glaze over. But the older son is uh, very rules-based. He never left the house. He just stayed at home, followed all the father's rules. And then when the son, the, uh, the, the younger brother comes home and they're throwing a party for him, this older brother is outside of the party, tragically, and he won't go in. And the father comes out and says, come and celebrate that your brother was lost and now he's found. He's come home. But the older brother can't find it in his heart to actually be glad. He can't wrap his mind around the fact that the father would show the younger son grace because he's, he's run so far away and he's been so bad and he hasn't followed the rules. And the older brother says to the father, well, I never left. I followed all the rules and you never threw a party for me. You never killed the fattened calf for me. How can you do this for, the, the, for my brother? And what Jesus is getting at as he's sharing this story with the religious Pharisees that he's speaking to is that there's more than one way to be lost. Because the older brother, just like the younger brother wanted the father's stuff but didn't want the father, the older brother is actually the same. He didn't want the father. He just wanted his, his portion of the inheritance. But he wanted to get it not through living lavishly. He wanted to get it through following the rules and being good enough to earn it. He wanted to put his father in his debt. 
And Jesus is saying that older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. And tragically, he's outside of the party, not in the house of God, not in the family of God. So you can be lost like the younger brother, but you can also be lost like the older brother in legalism, in moralistic rule keeping, where you think that because of the way that you live, because of your being, you're being really good, you were born in the church, grew up in the church, live in the church, die in the church, do all the church stuff, that God owes you something. And Jesus is saying that older brother is just as lost. It's those older brother types, the legalistic types that can't get grace into their hearts. They can't understand grace. They won't come to the Father by grace. It's those types of people that are starting to infiltrate the early church, the Galatian church that Paul is writing to. And Paul is gonna get really fired up about these, these grace killers, these legalists who are coming in and trying to add to the gospel of grace. They're trying to make it about rule keeping. To be a Christian, to be saved by God means Jesus plus following the law of Moses. That's the context. That's what we're going to see. We're just going to read it together and go verse by verse and make some observations and unpack it together. Um, So chapter two, verse one. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So what's Paul talking about? Um, In the passage just before this one, he shared with us how he went up to Jerusalem, which is where the mothership church was. He went up there for 15 days to get acquainted with Peter and hang out with him there. And then now 14 years after that, he's gone up to Jerusalem again. And really quickly, if you notice, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. We can just kind of gloss over that, but I think it's actually really important because what Paul is showing us uh, is something about discipleship. So Paul is going on this missionary journey up to Jerusalem, and what does he do? He takes Titus with him. Titus is a young leader, a young pastor that Paul has identified as a future leader in the church. He sees this potential in Titus, and part of Paul's discipleship, an indispensable part of it, is actually making and raising up other disciples of Jesus. So Paul takes Titus, this young man, he's a Greek, non-Jewish guy who becomes a Christian, believes in Jesus, starts walking with Jesus, and Paul takes him under his wing and mentors him and raises him up. And this is a beautiful pattern that we see in Paul's life where he is always, as part of his own discipleship, he is coming alongside younger other people and pouring into them what God has poured into Paul. He wants to pass along his wisdom, his experience, and part of that is bringing Titus along with him for the, the missionary journey. And um, there's this guy, Richard Blackaby. He's an old, an old pastor, and I think he nails this. He was in, toward the end of his life. Um, he started just putting out a ton of content um, to pass along to younger leaders and younger Christians. And somebody asked him in an interview, man, why are you putting out so much of this stuff like, like you're getting in your later years here? And his quote was, every time an old man dies, a library dies with him. Isn't that true? Man, we grow and we follow Jesus and we live our lives and then we get so much truth and experience and wisdom that the Holy Spirit pours into us from a lifetime of walking with the Lord. And man, Blackaby was like, I gotta get this out here. I gotta share this with the world. It's this beautiful resource that we have in the church. Man, the older people, if you're here, I'm not gonna make eye contact with you, but you know if you're old. Uh, (laughs) Man, you have a wealth of wisdom through your lifetime that we need, I need Man, we need you to, to, to not just like move to Phoenix and golf the rest of your life. 
Dude, you got to pass that knowledge, that wisdom, that experience along to the younger generations and, and raise us up. Paul showed that pattern throughout his whole life. Jesus showed us, he modeled that pattern for us. He hung out with 12 men and he poured into them, poured into them, poured into them and said, now go and make disciples. An indispensable part of discipleship is then going and making disciples. So just as a, a quick question for you guys, are you being discipled by somebody and are you discipling anyone? Is there somebody, a younger person, a younger man or woman maybe that you are sitting with, having coffee with, just listening to them, listening to their stories, listening to their struggles, their concerns, praying with them, praying for them, building into them, passing along the wisdom and the experience that God has poured into you. I was lucky enough to have this early on in my life. I had a, uh, when I played soccer at, at uh, university, I had my coach who was a Christian who, who came alongside of me. He was just like, and you guys watch Ted Lasso? He's like Roy Kent, basically, like just always grumpy, like you think he hates everything, um, but actually just the softest, hardest man. And he came alongside of me, and I was really struggling at the time with soccer and with playing time and with not having a good time on the team. And he just came alongside of me and went, hey, man, this actually, your role on this team actually isn't really about soccer. Okay, there are people, there's, God's doing stuff on this team, and I need you to actually get over yourself and have your eyes open and see where God is working and where he's moving and ask the question, who can I come alongside of and pour into? And then when I actually did that, I got over myself and actually started building into other people. God did this amazing thing where he started to create this little mini revival on our team where that echoed out and people that I discipled started to disciple other people and it just spread and it was beautiful. But there's this amazing thing that happens when we actually try to disciple people it's good for others, but it's also good for our own growth. Because when you need to sit and answer questions and think deeply about the concerns and the experiences of somebody else, it forces you to actually take the things that you've learned and the things that you know and actually apply them in real life. And so Paul models this beautifully for us. And he says, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation, verse two, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And so why did Paul go up? What is this revelation? I went up because of a revelation. And we actually know from Acts 11, this is the reason Paul and Barnabas and Titus went up there. It says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, who is now Paul. And so that's the reason that they're up there in Jerusalem. It was prophesied, this revelation that Paul got. It was a prophecy from this prophet named Agabus. There's going to be a great famine in all the world. So there's going to be this, this need. There's going to be hungry, starving people. And so another part of Paul's discipleship that he's modeling is, hey, there's a need. We're actually going to go. Hey, Barnabas, hey, Titus, come on. We got to go and meet this felt need. There's hungry people. It's not just preaching the gospel. It's, yes, preaching the gospel, but also meeting the tangible needs. It's this deep abiding care for hungry people, for hurting people, for broken people. And you see Jesus model this as well, where he goes and, yes, he preaches and teaches truth, but he does it, how? By also healing crippled people by also feeding hungry people, by opening blind eyes of blind people. Right? It's both. It's not this false dichotomy of it's either we preach the gospel and we're all about truth in the Bible or it's you know humanitarian aid and it's meeting felt needs. It's feeding hungry people, caring for people. It's both. It's not either or, it's both and. So they're up there meeting this need and then while they're there, Paul says he 
set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. So what is he doing there? So Paul is going up to the Jerusalem church, the mothership church, and he is laying before them the gospel that he's preaching, which is the gospel of grace, that we are saved not by any works that we can do, not by any ritual or ceremony, purely saved by the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we receive that grace through faith in Jesus. That's it. That's the gospel. That's how we're saved. That's Paul's gospel. And he's laying that before this council. And the reason he's doing that is because there is a conflict that has arisen in the Galatian church where it's actually a beautiful thing initially where both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people are believing in Jesus. They're believing the gospel and having their lives transformed by the grace of Jesus. And it's amazing. But then some of the people who are becoming Christians from a Jewish background Um, because they have this background in Judaism where you had to follow the moralistic ceremonial um, law of Moses, they were bringing that into their Christianity and saying, hey, we used to have to be circumcised as Jewish followers of God. So now even as Christians who are Christians because of Jesus, in order to be a Christian, actually we need to believe in Jesus plus still get circumcised and follow the letter of the moralistic Mosaic law. And so they're bringing that gospel into the church and it's this blend that's actually doing damage because Paul's trying to preach to the new believers and the seekers within the early church. Hey, it's by grace alone through Jesus that you're saved. And these Jewish converts are coming in and saying, no, it's Jesus plus you need to get circumcised. So Paul brings his gospel of grace before the council in Jerusalem to make sure that he's not running in vain, that he's preaching the right gospel, that they affirm that gospel because if they're not, if the leaders in the Jerusalem church are actually affirming and encouraging the gospel of works, then it's gonna make a total mess and Paul's gonna have been running in vain because he's trying to preach a different gospel, the true gospel of grace. And so he lays it before them. And then verse three, this is awesome. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. This is awesome. So Titus is a a Greek, a non-Jewish guy who um, becomes a Christian, believes the gospel, follows Jesus, and then because there's this, this weird conflict going on, Paul actually brings him up uh, as a, having a Greek background. He brings him up to Jerusalem to, as actually a bit of a test case to see if the Jerusalem leaders are gonna force him to get circumcised, which is an interesting test if you're Paul and you're, ment- you're mentoring Titus because Paul must have gone to Titus and gone, hey, Titus, this is awesome. We're gonna go up to Jerusalem on a mission trip. And Titus is like, oh, amazing. He's this zealous young leader. He's a teacher and a preacher. So he's like, oh, sweet. Mission trip, am I going to be, am I preaching sermons in the synagogue? What are we doing? And Paul's like, I actually just want to see if they'll circumcise you. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) sounds good. Sometimes you got to take one for the team, right? And so Paul brings Titus up there to see if the Jerusalem leaders will force him to get circumcised and they don't, which seems like kind of a small thing, but it's actually a huge deal because they're affirming Paul's gospel of grace. They're affirming that we are not saved by Jesus plus circumcision or anything else. It is Jesus, the grace of Jesus alone. They're affirming what Paul and what Jesus had been saying the whole time is that Jesus comes in and brings a new covenant. He brings a new covenant. So by the old covenant, um, the Jewish people had to get circumcised to show that they belong to the family of God. And then their way of relating to God And walking with God was by following the rules, by following the the Mosaic law, the letter of the law. And that's how they related to, to God. And Jesus comes along and says, that was good. That was okay for a time. But now I'm bringing something better where it's no longer by following the letter of the law that you're gonna relate to God. It's gonna be through 
my perfect following of the letter of the law for you and then giving you that perfect life, that perfect righteousness. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what does this mean? This is Jesus coming in and saying, okay, guys, we gotta get straight on this. Okay, the Jewish people are saying it's Jesus, it's grace, it's belief in in Jesus plus circumcision. And Jesus is coming in and saying, no, I'm bringing something else. So I think of it this way. So the Jewish people, they used to, by, by law, they were required to take a Sabbath rest day once a week. They had to. Jesus comes along and says, come to me and I will give you rest. So that was a good thing to keep the Sabbath, but now I'm coming and fulfilling it perfectly in myself. Come to me and I will give you perfect rest. So the Jewish people, to be right with God because they couldn't fulfill the letter of the law perfectly because they were imperfect people, they had to make atoning blood sacrifices in the temple. They had to sacrifice animals in order to atone for their sins. Jesus comes along and says, that was okay for a time, but now I'm gonna be the perfect atoning blood sacrifice for you. John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who Jesus was. He's, I'm the once and for all perfect blood sacrifice. I'm gonna lay down my life. I'm gonna shed my blood on the cross for you once and for all so that you, you don't have to keep repeatedly sacrificing animals on the altar. I'm gonna be that perfect blood sacrifice for you. And with circumcision, they used to circumcise males on the eighth day that they were born. After they were born, in order to show that they belong to the family of God, Jesus comes along and says, no, no, this is a new covenant now. It's no longer circumcision outwardly of your physical body. I want, I want your, your heart circumcised. It's about your heart. And that's through me. That's through faith in me. That's why Paul's able to say in Romans 2, He lays out this truth of Jesus. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. In summary, God is not ultimately after what we do on the outside, God wants to change what we want to do on the inside, be transforming our hearts, writing his letter of the law on our minds and on our hearts. He wants our heart through faith in Jesus and then we live outwardly from that place of love. It's no longer following the rules, the moral law out of obedience strictly because it's, we're afraid of God that he's gonna crush us or kill us or whatever if we're not good enough. It's now out of a place of freedom and love because of what God has already done for us. We live out of that place of freedom. And so Jesus brought this new covenant, but this was a problem. This was such a, a big thing that Paul was talking about because these people, these Jewish converts were coming in and still they were forcing their, their circumcision laws, their moral laws on the new Christians, especially the, the Greek the ones with the Greek background who are coming in and being saved and changed by grace. The Jewish uh, converts were coming in and still forcing, trying to force circumcision and the letter of the law on these new believers. And so Paul says, verse four, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul's saying these people who are trying to come in and force all their rules, all their moralistic standards on you, 
They're trying to say it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus circumcision. They're like little snakes who slipped in to rob us of our freedom that we have in Christ, to rob us of our freedom that we have in the gospel and to force all their legalistic rules on us. It's basically people who come in and say it's not just Jesus that you're saved by. It's not just his grace that you're saved by. It's Jesus plus you got all these rules. Jesus calls these people in the the parable of the two sons, he calls them the older brother. Paul calls them false brothers. And uh, one of my favorite old pastors, Chuck Swindoll, he calls them grace killers. These are people who come into the church with their legalism, with their standards, their list, their personal list of do's and don'ts, their personal list of no-nos, and they make being a Christian more about the, the rules, the do's and the don'ts than about the grace of Jesus. And they take all of their personal little hang-ups and the things, the doctrines, the theology, the, the behavioral things that they think it means to be a Christian, and they come and they force that on people and say, in order to be a Christian, you must fill in the blank. Right? It was a problem back then and it's still a problem now. How does this look for us now in the church? This might look like some churches who go, being a Christian is, yes, it's faith in Jesus, but it's also, you have to be baptized the way that we baptize people. It's faith in Jesus plus we only sing hymns or we don't sing hymns, we only sing Hillsong. Or it's faith in Jesus plus what translation of the Bible do you use? King James only? Better be. Or just the message? It's not even a translation. Um, what is it? What's the, tra- what's the best translation of the Bible, guys? ESV. <laughs> it's the most accurate. I think the best translation of the Bible, I'm at a point in my life where I think the best translation is the one that you'll actually read. There's a couple really bad ones, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but the best translation is the one that won't just sit on your nightstand like a nice leather ornament and collect dust. Um, but we can get so legalistic, right, about these things, these preferences that we have in the church, man, do you, it's Jesus plus our view on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus plus, this is what we think about predestination and election. It's Jesus plus, this is our view on gender roles and leadership in the church. It's Jesus plus, 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 and Paul's going, no, man. Culturally, what does this look like? Do you send your kids to private school? Do you send them to Christian school? Do you homeschool them? No school? just like Mowgli out in the wilderness, right? What's the Christian way to do it, right? If there's, man, the things that, that Paul's talking about, the things that, that we get hung up on, it's think about anything for you that you are tempted to elevate that's a secondary issue. It's not a gospel issue that you are tempted to elevate to the same level as the gospel and say to yourself, a real Christian would, right? A real Christian would do this. A real Christian wouldn't do this. What else? Friends. Man, who are your friends? Do you hang out with people who are not Christians? Because a real Christian would only hang out with other Christians. Or a real Christian would only hang out with non-Christians. Right? Which is it? Real Christians don't swear. Right? Real Christians don't drink alcohol. Man, there are things that are super clear in the Bible that are, yeah, don't get drunk. Do not commit adultery. Jesus actually jacked up the standard. If you look at someone or think about someone lustfully, that's adultery in your heart. If you're angry towards someone and you act out of anger, that's murder in your heart. There is a standard. There's a biblical standard. But on things that are not the gospel, there must be grace. Because what legalism does is it comes in and it only allows you to see people for where they are right now. 
and not for where they've come from or where they're going, right? Like take for example, so like somebody in my gym that I had the opportunity to walk with and, and see them come to know Jesus and, and just radical transformation in their life. Man, we're sitting in a Bible study with a bunch of non-Christians and Christians and whatever, and it's amazing. But this guy, like his language was colorful, right? And that, <laughs> that hadn't changed yet. And so we're sitting there and we're praying together. And this guy is so jacked up about grace. He's been transformed by grace. But the way that came out in his prayer was like, Jesus, I am so bleeping blown away by your grace to me. I cannot bleep and believe that you would do this for me. I'm so bleeping messed up, but you are so bleeping good to me, God. He's dropping F-bombs in his prayer. And I'm like, this is amazing. But then I look up and like all the Christians in the room are just like, I thought this guy was a Christian, right? But if you can't see the heart underneath that prayer that he's praying from a genuine place because of the expletive words that he's using, man, this guy is so gripped and blown away by the grace of God. And I'm not saying that it's, it's just total license and we just do whatever we want, and there are things that need to be corrected and, and fixed. And it's this journey, but it's not a linear process the way that we want it all the time, right? We are saved by grace alone through faith. That's how we're brought into the family of God. And then he fills us with his spirit and he does this beautiful work of refining and sanctifying and chiseling away the things that need to go. And it's this process that we do together and we help each other in that, but there must be grace in that. There can't be this legalistic attitude where it's just like, no, you don't look the way that I want you to look right now. You're not in the place that I want you to be in your journey of sanctification. So you're written off. You're not a Christian. I had another friend back in Sydney who, uh, from the gym also, who um, he started coming to church with me and we're sitting through a sermon and um, he had never been to church before, which is amazing. And he's like, he's, he's dialed in, man. But the preacher's telling a story and he's like, I forget what he was even talking about, but he's telling a story and my buddy just lifts up his hand. Like he had a question and he just left it up there. And this guy, the preacher got so uncomfortable and eventually he's just like, question? And then my buddy just starts this back and forth dialogue with him, completely derailed the sermon. And then we're all just watching them talk to each other. And the Christians, a lot of the Christians in the room were appalled. Man, we ruined church. But for me, I'm just dying laughing and also like, hey, my buddy's never been to church before. He's learning a ton and this is amazing. But man, what's, what's our heart? What's our heart in this? Are there things that we're elevating to the level of the gospel, making it about that? Is there room for grace for us to sort through this? It's not, man, we, we, can, we can correct legalism, but then we can drift into license too. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. Paul never suggested that. Jesus never suggested that. It's, but there are some things that are not super clear, set in stone in the scripture. And what they require is wisdom. It requires the input of other people who know us. And man, things might be different from person to person. Like for me personally, um, I have felt a conviction to never drink alcohol. So I haven't, I've, I've just never done it. I would never put that on any of you. I just for some reason feel a conviction not to do that. It's not something I, I feel God wants in my life. There's nothing wrong in your context. If you're not a re like recovering alcoholic or you don't have a pre-existing issue with that, man, have a beer and enjoy it to the glory of God. I will never put that on you. 
and we don't force our our own personal list of no-nos on people and make it the gospel. I mean, it was St. Augustine who said, in essentials, unity. So we need to be unified on the gospel, what it is, not ever stray from grace. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. There has to be grace as we work this out together. Um, Charles Swindoll, who I mentioned earlier, um, he has some strong words in an interview when somebody asked him about, about legalism in his church. He said this, grace killers cannot be mildly ignored or kindly tolerated. You can no more allow legalism to continue than you could permit a rattlesnake to slip into your house and hide. Before long, somebody is going to get hurt. The problem with legalists is that not enough people have confronted them and told them to get lost. Those are strong words, but I don't mess with legalism anymore. I'm 72 years old. What have I got to lose? Seriously, I used to kowtow to legalists, but they're dangerous. They are grace killers. They will drive off every new Christian you bring to church. They are enemies of the faith. Those are some strong words. But here's the thing. There is, there's grace for our legalism too, Right? but this is just too important of a thing to mess around with. We can't allow this to come in because it poisons everything. When we start to elevate things that are not the gospel to the level of the gospel and just hoist that upon people and make them feel like lesser Christians or not a Christian because they don't yet look like what I want them to look like as a Christian. Paul has no room for that. He even says in verse five, to them, these legalists, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We need to protect the gospel of grace. It's too important. And what did Paul say? Uh, What is his reasoning in verse four? He said these people, these legalists, these grace killers, they slipped in, why? To spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Slavery versus freedom on this issue? Because the interesting thing is that, man, in, in all my time with all my some of my best buddies in the world have never been and still aren't Christians, but they've seen me walk through this process of coming to know Jesus and then, you know, doing things like, like not getting wasted and not having sex before marriage and things like that. And the, the most common conversation that I have over and over and over again with them is they say to me, well, yeah, that's good that you believe that and you follow that, but I could never live such like a restricted lifestyle. I could never just like have all the, like that seems like slavery to me. Like you can only have sex with one person. You can, you know, all these things. Like, I don't think I could live like that. That seems like slavery. And that's just so interesting to me because my response has always been the same. It's that I don't live this way because I have to. I live this way because I, I actually want to. Because my understanding has shifted where I'm not doing these things to make God love me more. That's not possible. He doesn't love me more because I do these things. I'm doing these things. I'm living this way because I actually believe in my heart of hearts that God is God and he's real, that he made the world, that he made me, he made my body, he made sexuality, he made marriage, he designed human flourishing. So he actually knows the way that we're going to function best. And he gave me everything. Everything I have is a gift from him. He saved me by his grace and he knows me and he loves me and he wants good for me. He's not trying to rob me of anything. And so to live by his ways, to do sexuality this way and lifestyle this way and whatever, to follow the ways of God, it's, it's not so that he'll love me it's, and it's not slavery. It's actually wisdom. 
It's life. Because to live God's way that he designed for us is actually the most life-giving way. It's actually the way to be most truly human, to be most truly myself, the way that God has designed me to be. It's not slavery, it's freedom. And it's this beautiful reality Paul is talking about where he's saying, don't, don't let them steal grace from you because grace is freedom. The grace of God, the grace of Jesus sets us free from our guilt, from our shame that weighs us down. It sets us free from our inability to resist sin and temptation. It just sets us free to live a life of following God and following his ways, not because we have to, but because we want to. And to fall back into legalism, to add to the gospel is actually slavery. Because what happens when we live a legalistic life, when we live in a way that we think we're earning it, we're earning salvation and love from God, man, you end up, you end up on, the, on the treadmill. Well, I'll call it the Stairmaster, actually. You guys ever use the Stairmaster at the gym? It's a horrific machine. It's the worst. It's this thing where you just like, you set the resistance and then you just walk upstairs, but you don't go anywhere, you know? And it's just, it's terrible, man. It's so hard. But that's what legalism is. We're walking on stairs. It's terrible. It's difficult. You're sweaty. You're exhausted. And you hate yourself. And you're actually not getting anywhere. You're trying to climb the staircase up to God to be with him so that he'll love you but you're actually not getting anywhere and you're just ending up broken and sweaty and exhausted and miserable and empty. That's the slavery of legalism, but the freedom of grace is that Jesus comes down the stupid stairmaster. He comes down to us. He grabs us and he brings us to the top to be with him. Don't fall back. Don't let people drag you back into the slavery of the false gospel of legalism. We need to keep moving in our passage. Verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. So he's just saying, I don't care that these, these uh, other leaders, these other apostles seem to be influential. They're popular in the church. That doesn't matter. We have the same gospel. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He's just saying these, these Jerusalem leaders, they added nothing to my gospel because you can't add and you should never add to the gospel of grace not circumcision, not anything else. Verse seven, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This is beautiful. This is just Paul saying, hey, me and Barnabas over here and Titus, we have a call to go to the non-Jewish people to reach them with the grace of the gospel. But Peter and James and John and the other Jerusalem apostles, they have a call to go to the Jewish people and bring the grace of the gospel to them and point them to Jesus. We have very different callings, but we have the same gospel and we have the same spirit living in us and empowering us for that work. Same gospel, same spirit, different calling. This is the beautiful thing about the family of God and the kingdom of God is that, man, we don't all need to look like this just big homogenous bunch where we all look the same and we all do the same things and we all have the same calling because that's not true. We don't. We have different callings. And so what Paul is saying is we need to get straight on the gospel. We need to agree on the gospels. In essentials, unity. 
But he's saying, I have the same gospel and we're never gonna compromise that gospel. I've got the same one that James and Peter and John are preaching. And he said in verse eight, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The same God, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit is working through each of us in a very different way, in a very different context. And that is beautiful because we can give what? The right hand of fellowship to each other. We're on the same team. We've got the same spirit. We've got the same gospel, but we're all wired very uniquely and we're all called to different contexts. And it's beautiful. So what is your context? What is the way God has wired you? What's the circle of influence that he's given you? He's wired you uniquely and called you to be the gospel, to be salt and to be light in that space. You see this played out where Peter is, is called to, to go to the Jewish people and you see a beautiful example of that in Acts chapter two where this is what it looks like in his context. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he's speaking to Jewish people predominantly and so what does he do? He explains to them the Old Testament scriptures that they've got internalized and he explains to them how those Old Testament scriptures are pointing to Jesus. Boom, beautiful. People understand the gospel and they believe. And then you see Paul, completely different type of ministry. He goes to the Areopagus in Athens, in Greece, where it's this forum of Greek thought and philosophy. And he goes into that space and he quotes Greek philosophers and poets and artists to them and relates to them in that way and explains how those Greek poets and philosophers and artists are actually pointing to the grace of Jesus and the gospel and he reaches them that way. Same gospel, same spirit, different calling. We need different types of churches who emphasize different things. That's actually a beautiful thing because we're on the same team working together. And that last verse, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul had reminded us at the beginning, hey, I went up to Jerusalem because of my care for the poor. And he reminds us again at the end, remember the poor, remember the poor. Non-negotiable part of his discipleship was to remember the poor He writes this to the Corinthian church. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That is the reality that has gripped Paul's life. He understands that God has given him absolutely everything, that Jesus, who had access to everything in the universe, chose to come down and become poor so that we can become rich, that we could have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that reality grips Paul and that sends him out with open-handed generosity to go out into the world saying, nothing that I have is actually mine. It's all a gift of God. Remember the poor. Just a friendly reminder, guys, that we have a very short life in the grand scheme of things, that every single thing that we have is actually a gift from God and he's given it to us for this short time, these few short years um, to use, to actually steward, to multiply, to invest and do something with it. And we're not taking it with us when we go. So what's the talent? What's the time? What's the treasure that God has entrusted you with? Where are you investing it? Are you investing it in heavenly things? Are you investing it in the only thing that's actually gonna last and come with you in eternity, which is people, souls? It's not gospel, doctrine, theology, or generosity. It's both. The two need to go hand in hand. So we're gonna go and and move now into a time of communion. We're gonna take the bread and the juice. We're gonna sing a couple more songs. But I just wanna put a couple things on your mind, on your heart. 
as ways that you can respond. And so just like Paul showed us this example of, of discipleship, hey, is there anyone in your life right now that you've sought out and asked them to pour into you and disciple you? Is there anyone right now that you are actually intentionally reaching out to and sitting down with and going for a coffee or going for lunch or whatever and actually pouring into them intentionally and discipling and teaching and listening and praying for them? Is there anyone that you can tap on the shoulder and just go, hey, we should do this together. Let's sharpen each other. Maybe you've been living in this legalistic mindset. Maybe you resonate with the older brother in this story where you've actually just been trying really, really, really hard to be moralistic and it's not really getting you anywhere. And you need to actually receive the, the grace of Jesus and know that it's not anything that you're doing or could ever do. It's what he's already done for you in the cross and his blood poured out for you that we're celebrating right now. That you can be in his family, in his household, and he is waiting, he's welcoming you, man, both brothers, older brother or younger brother, to wrap his arms around you and give you everything and throw a party for you and give you life and flourishing. And maybe you resonate more with the younger brother and you have been running away. Maybe there's some sin, there's some stuff in your life that you know is getting between you and God and you need to just lay it down. You need to confess it. Maybe there are things that man, you know you're not investing what God has given you with an eternal mindset and perspective and you need to make some changes. Whatever it is, I would just invite you, ask the Holy Spirit to come. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you don't subscribe to this. And I would just say, man, pray to God. Just ask God if he's real, if he would come and speak to you in this moment and do something in this moment. And maybe he wants to lay something on your mind and your heart. Whatever that might be, even if it's none of those things, I would love to pray with you. We're gonna have people at the front to pray with you for whatever it might be. It doesn't even have to be a problem. If you just wanna come and praise God together, let's do that. But we're gonna do that. We're gonna sing from the heart. Come up, take the bread and the juice. There's gluten-free on this side if you need it. Go back to your seat and then we'll sing. We'll take those things together and then we'll sing again. It's gonna be great. So let's stand and do that.